you've been with us the last number of weeks, we've been making our journey through the book of Nehemiah, and by God's grace, we're here at the end. Life without confrontation is directionless, aimless, and passive. When unchallenged, human beings tend to drift, to wander, or to stagnate. Confrontation is a gift. It's David Osberger who said that, and I want to ask, do you agree? Do you believe that you need to be confronted? That if you are left unchecked, you will begin to drift and wander away. How often did you think this week, man, I cannot wait to be confronted? Please, Lord, send many to come confront me. Probably none of you thought that. Because usually confrontation is messy. It's uncomfortable. It's, it's something that, that we, as those that have to confront, never really enjoy. Although, I suspect there are those that do enjoy it, and that's a whole nother sermon. But what happens if you never confront your children as they grow up in your house? What happens when your two-year-old says, I'm not going to eat anything except for candy, and you never confront them? What happens to your 16-year-old who, who decides to drive regularly over the speed limit, and you never confront them? I, I believe if we, if we never confront we're never showing love and care. You know, the history, I've said this before, the history in Scripture is brutally honest. If the Bible had no intention of being realistic, the book of Nehemiah would end it at chapter 12. A happy ending. Everyone commits to the Lord. Yet we're going to do this, God. We commit, we make a covenant right now, and everything turns out perfectly. A happy ending. We, we love that in movies, right? But the Bible is very realistic. It shows us that as humans, we struggle to obey God's word consistently, and, and how confrontation to sin is part of the Christian life and Christian growth. And the point of confrontation, as we see in the Bible, is for holiness. You know, the walls, we, we tend to just go to Nehemiah and think it's all about the walls. That's, that's it. He's just, Nehemiah is a building manager. The walls need to be built. And, and that's true to a certain extent, right? We see the details of the walls and how it's to be built from chapters 1 through 7. So almost over half of the book is given to that. But the greater need for God's people was a reformation of their lives and their worship, and that's chapters 8 through 12. And if chapter 13 teaches us anything, it's that reformation is never complete. It's been said before, semper reformanda. The Reformed Church is always in need of reformation. In other words, the church is always reforming. We will never arrive. If you are new to our church and think that we have arrived, just hang out for a few more weeks. None of us have. 
when Pastor Chris was leaving, we had a number of conversations as he's going through what that church would look like. And he saw a number of areas, as pastors tend to do, of areas of growth. And, 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 and somewhat, if, if he's honest, it was kind of like a hesitation. Should I, should I take this? This is before he committed. Should I do this? And I said to him multiple times, Chris, if that church was perfect, they wouldn't need you. Because every church is always reforming. Every group of believers that has ever existed is going through reformation. And every pastor, if they're honest, wants an easy church. I don't want difficulty. But that's not what we serve. That's not what happens in church. Because the truth of the, of the scriptures is that we never, any of us, fully arrive. And so God gives biblical church leaders to confront sin and to call Christians to repent and return to the Lord for the sake of their own souls and for the holiness of God. Confrontation is part of the Christian life. And God shows merciful love by sending people into our lives to call us back into right alignment with God's Word in our relationship to Him. It is mercy, friends. If we respond in humility when we're confronted, we're inviting people to continue to communicate their concerns to us. But if we respond with pride, people will stop approaching us and we will continue to live in misalignment to God and his word. Right? If you pet a dog who continues to bite your hand, you will stop petting that dog. If you go to another Christian brother or sister who continues to snap back, you will stop going to that Christian brother and sister. So it's up to us to receive confrontation. And I want you in this, this 40 minutes to think through, how do I receive confrontation? Am I willing to receive confrontation? So here's the main idea of the text this morning. Biblical leaders confront sin and call believers to repent and return to the Lord for the sake of their own souls and the holiness of God. And there's three points as we walk through this that just fall with the text. Confrontation about the temple, confrontation about the Sabbath, confrontation about their marriages. And this is Nehemiah coming back, and he's dealing with the sins of the people. So as we turn now to our attention to the last chapter, if you haven't already, turn to Nehemiah chapter 13. Again, if you don't have a Bible, you're going to need one. So there's some in the seats in front of you. We encourage you to, to turn to that, to have it open. It'll help you stay focused as we walk through this chapter. Chapter 13, verse 1. On that day they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people, and it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. For they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. As soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. So just pausing for a moment. We need to be reminded here, this issue that, that Nehemiah brings up, or, or the author brings up in this point, is, is not a racial issue, but it's a spiritual issue. And it seems absolute, that no Ammonite, no Moabite can ever enter the assembly, but yet there's still mercy. 
And, and Proverbs 28, 13 says, whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. God has a standard, and yet God has provided a way. There was a Moabite who entered in the assembly of God's people. Do you know her? Her name was Ruth. See, Ruth separated herself from the idolatry of her people and devoted herself to God, the God of Naomi, her mother-in-law. She turned from sin and made a confession and devoted herself to God, and she was welcomed into the family of God. But without repentance, there is no salvation. So these first three verses should, should, in my estimation, probably be connected back to chapter 12, more than the thirteen. Because when we come to chapter 13, verse 4, we come now to a situation of how the people have fallen away. Fallen away from their commitment, fallen away from God, fallen away to obedience to his word. And how badly they need confrontation. So we launch into that through the first point. Confrontation about the temple. We need to understand that probably, it's, it's hard to, to gauge this, but probably verse 4 is about 12 years after what transpired in verses 1, 2, and 3. It's hard. We, we tend not to think that when we read the Bible. We just tend to think it, this happened next and this happened next. No, there's a big gap here, okay? We're not, certain, uh, we're not certain if Nehemiah was gone the whole time, but he was gone, okay? He, he's, he's left Jerusalem, and he goes back to, as we will see, uh, where he came from. It doesn't, it doesn't mean he was gone the whole time, but when Nehemiah was there, he led an exemplary life in Jerusalem, but things began to fall apart when he leaves. People started to do things without asking whether God's word had anything to say on the subject. And they began to, as we will see, live for themselves and not for the Lord. Look at verse 4. Now before this, Eliashab the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of God and who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by commandment to the Levites, singers, and gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priests. While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem for the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon. I went to the king, and after some time I asked leave of the king and came to Jerusalem, and then I discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And I was very angry. And I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I gave orders, and they cleansed the chambers. And I brought back there the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. One commentator, Derek Kidner, writes, If on Nehemiah's first visit had been a whirlwind, his second visit was all fire and earthquake to this city that had settled down in his absence to a comfortable compromise with the Gentile world. Nehemiah's reaction, as we will see in the rest of this chapter, is twofold. Anger and action. His holy anger led him to purge and restore the temple's integrity here in this section. If you remember, in chapter 12, all the contributions that were given were stored, were then to be stored in this chamber in the temple. It was a small warehouse where they would store all the resources for the Levites and the leaders so that they had all that they needed to do the ministry. But while Nehemiah is away, you know, when the cat is away, the mice will play. And the priest, Eliashib, decides, decides to let cousin Eddie take up residence in the temple. Why is this important? Well, first, 
Tobiah wasn't supposed to be in the temple at all. He was a non-believer. Second, he hated the people of God, as we've seen earlier in the book, right? The temple was the place on earth where God's presence would reside for the people of God, and Eliashub let Tobiah live there to take up residence. The temple is where God resided. And, and Nehemiah comes back to find out that's where Tobiah is residing. Can you see the problem here? Tobiah is a parasite. He's leeching off the people of God for his own benefit. He was invited in and given a place to live, and he's taken care of and provided for, all the while taking away the spiritual vitality of the people of God. They needed to be confronted. Do you have any Tobias in your life? Things that take away health, burden us with distractions, ultimately take us away from worshiping God? Where are the Tobias in your life? Is it school? Is it children in your home? Is it friends? Is it sports? Is it career aspirations? Is it the desire for a clean house no matter what? Is it the hobbies that have to be fed? They all can be Tobias. We all have a Tobias, something or someone that we have let into our lives that is distracting us from fully worshiping God. What is yours? I don't know, but you do. And what do you think you should do about that, Tobiah? What did Nehemiah do? Look at verse 8. I was very angry, and so I took lots of time to talk with this about Tobiah and let him stay because he promised he would move out. Yeah, it doesn't say that. I threw all of the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Now, I believe that this is literal. I don't think this was a setting outside. I think he threw everything out of that chamber. Friends, we need to get serious about the distractions that you've allowed and invited into your life that is distracting you from worshiping God. Nehemiah does not coddle Tobiah or even work to make the transition easier. He tosses him out. I mean, that's what you do with leeches, right? Something else interesting about this situation is that Nehemiah doesn't stop to have a discussion with Eliah. Eliashev, the high priest, about what he's done wrong and tries to persuade him to go make the changes. No, Nehemiah leads. And that means action. Eliashev, the priest, had opportunity many times to rectify the situation. And when he comes back, nothing's changed. I'm sure at this point he's never even realized there was a problem until Nehemiah got there. And Nehemiah's holy, righteous anger cleans house. 
Friend, if there is something disrupting your worship with God, you need to throw it out. Simple as that. You need to get rid of it. Nehemiah also, maybe your mind is gone here, foreshadows another one who would enter the temple and find disturbing things as well. Traitors making money, making a mockery of God's worship. And on that occasion, the one who was righteously angry as well made a whip, overturned tables, dumped out money bags, and drove people out of the temple. Jesus was angry that day, and he cleaned out the temple. And why was he angry? Christ's anger was rooted in the reaction against the religious irreverence of the Jews toward God the Father and worship towards him. And God will not look kindly on this defamation of his holiness. Nehemiah is angry for the same reason here. And he's confronting them with their sinful actions towards the holiness of God. And as a good leader, Nehemiah confronts their sin especially the sin of the temple of worship. But he's not done yet. He confronts confrontation about the Sabbath. Look at verse 10. I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them, so that the Levites and singers who did the work had fled each to his field. So I confronted the officials and said, why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their stations. Then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses. And I appointed as treasurers of their storehouses, Shemaliah the priest, Zadok the scribe, and Pedadiah of the Levites as their assistant, Hanan the son of Zakur, son of Mathaniah, for they were considered reliable. And their duty was to distribute to their brothers. Remember me, O my God, concerning this. And do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. See, the Levites at this point had had fled Jerusalem back to their own fields. Why? Because they needed to provide for their families. You know, as you continue to read the Bible and spend time in the Bible, we learn that sin is seldom done as an isolated event. One sin usually leads to another. And the sin of greed, which made the people neglect the support of the Levites, may have created empty rooms in the temple, which would then be occupied by Tobiah, who should have never been inside the temple to begin with. Or Eliashib, the the high priest, was acting immorally, and the people would have lost confidence in the priestly establishment and perhaps decided to stop giving in response to that. And yet the people knew based upon God's word, that they were obligated to give to the ministry of the temple, regardless of the leadership. It was a biblical command. The fact of the matter is, neglecting God's word is never safe for God's people. And they all sinned by not making the Sabbath a priority. But it gets worse. Verse 15, in those days I saw Judah people treading wine presses in the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on the day that they, when they sold food, Tyrians also who lived in the city brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah and Jerusalem itself. Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, what is this evil thing that you're doing, profaning the Sabbath day? 
Did not your fathers act in this way? And did not our God bring all disaster on us and on the city? Now you're bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. And here, they, they, they've forgotten their history again. They're going back to how they lived before they got back into Jerusalem. And he's, he's admonishing them to remember their prior sins. Good leadership stops continual sin against God for the sake of the person sinning and for the holiness of God. So Nehemiah acts. Verse 19, as soon as it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors should be shut and gave orders that they should not be opened until after the Sabbath. And I stationed some of my servants at the gates that no load might be brought in on the Sabbath day. Then the merchants and sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. But I warned them and said to them, why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. You can say amen to that. From that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember this, also my favor, O oh my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. See, the people and, and zeal to, to rebuild a healthy economy in the city ignore God's law. They, they simply set it aside and do what is right in their own eyes. You know, we've talked about the Sabbath multiple times, which it's there to acknowledge and recognize who God is as their creator and sustainer. See, the point of the Sabbath was for them to rely on him through faith. So to obey God's word about the Sabbath meant that they were trusting in him. They, tr they trusted him that, that he would provide for them that they would set aside the, the work that he needed and wanted to do so that they could trust in God. But as you can see, they're rejecting God and his word by their actions. And Nehemiah wastes no time to make changes. Some changes as leaders we can't afford to wait on. He shuts the gates and sets guards outside to make sure that they won't re-enter. Some think they can sidestep Nehemiah and his new rules, but Nehemiah will take care of him. The more I read of Nehemiah, the more I like him. But he doesn't act willfully or selfishly. It's very clear, actually, who he's acting on behalf. He's, he's acting on behalf of the Lord and of the people. And so he prays for God to remember him and his actions against the people of God and the pursuit to reform them. Chapter 13 is a whole different flavor of a chapter, right? He isn't messing around. He's taking on the sin of the people head on and praying that God would use his leadership well. And it's for their benefit and for God's holiness. The last confrontation we see is the confrontation about their marriages. Look at verse 23. 
In those days also I see the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. And half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. And I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. And I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, you shall not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among the nations there was no king like him, and he was beloved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made him made even him to sin. Shall we listen then to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? People at this point over this time had been intermarrying, something that was expressly forbidden for the people of God. This is again not a racial issue. I want to continue to to bring this up so we understand this. This is a spiritual issue. And and what we find is half the children don't speak the language, and and that was important because that's how you learned about God and how you learned to obey God. You need to understand, though, friends, this is not a national pride issue here. This is not about everyone needs to speak our language because we're America. That's not what he's talking about here. This is not so that we can be united as a country. Now, what's at stake is the word of God. That's what he's talking about here. The people, if they don't know the language in which God's word is written, they won't know God, and they won't know how to respond in obedience to God and his word. And so at this time, they needed needed to speak Hebrew so they could read the word, so they could understand the word. That's why it matters. And if the next generation couldn't speak the language of the word... What do you think would happen? They would walk away from God. What do you think will happen if the next generation doesn't take seriously the Bible and read the Bible and spend time in the Bible? They'll walk away from God. There's something for us to learn here. We are living in the most blessed time of history for the word of God. Right? Most of you have a smartphone that you can pull up and read the Bible in 25 or 30 different variations, translations. Some of you probably have lost count how many Bibles you own at home. Just like me. If you need to borrow a Bible, I've got 30 in my office. We have the word of God, easily accessible. We can order it on Amazon and not get persecuted. We have so much opportunity to be in the Bible. And friends, if we neglect God's word, what will happen? We know the answer. And yet you are just like me, and that life seems to take over. Got to answer that email. I got to check the social media. I got to check the sports score. Did the Lions win? I got to do this. I got to do this. I got to, and it, it pushes out the word of God. Friends, I'm in the same boat. I have the same temptation as you. So when I'm speaking to you, I'm speaking to myself. 
If the word of God does not have priority, it's the same issue that he's calling out here. It, it, it will lose its effect on our life and the further generations that we will come after us. Something else I want you to notice because I heard a few snickers when I read. Nehemiah's response and anger towards the people is descriptive, not prescriptive. Okay? Just because Nehemiah pulled their hair, we shouldn't. No matter how bad you really want to. It was most likely their beard here. We can't imagine this happening today. This is a cultural aspect here. I'm not even sure how to dive into this, but it doesn't matter. It shouldn't happen here, okay? We shouldn't beat people up for not following the Lord, okay? Our job as elders is not to rough people up if they're not doing what they should. What you're seeing here is Nehemiah's reaction, culturally understood, for those to to rightly align themselves to God's word in obedience to him. But we should have the same passion as Nehemiah. And that starts with us. Remember, he isn't getting angry for his sake. It may seem from the outside that Nehemiah is just doing this because he's worried about his resume, but he's not. He's worried about God's holiness in the lives of these people. He's angry for the glory of God and for the sake of their souls that they would follow him. Nehemiah is a righteously confrontational person. So I ask, how are you doing at confronting those who are not walking with God. In fact, they're walking away from God. And they're making a mockery of him in their life. Church members, do you know when you became a member, you covenanted with this church, meaning you committed to this church, and this church committed to you, and part of your duty as a committed member is to admonish one another. You know, a a few weeks ago I read that portion from the church commitment, the church covenant. We will walk together in brotherly love as become the members of a Christian church, exercise an affectionate care and watchfulness over each other and faithfully admonish and entreat one another as the occasion may require. We should walk together in love. But love doesn't mean we turn a blind eye towards sin. That's unloving. There are times when we need to admonish, we need to warn one another who who are leaving, who are drifting away from following the Lord to following themselves in the world so that they would walk in conformity to God's word. It's unloving for us to let them go. This is our responsibility as members. This is why we talk about membership. Do you see that as part of your responsibility as a Christian member of this church to lovingly confront other members when they 
step into public, ongoing, observable sin. I'm not saying that you become a sin finder where your job is to just seek it out like a shark waiting to devour. It's not what I'm saying here. I'm talking about your regular interaction with other people in relationship and you observe things that is not in alignment to God's word and confronting them lovingly and warning them, asking thoughtful questions, careful questions to help them with the desire that that hopefully if you were doing this, they would do the same for you. I sometimes wonder if, if church members think that, that this is only the job of elders to confront sin. And so when you see someone walking away from the Lord, you just email us. We're thankful because we want to help as elders. But it would help the sanctity of our church family if members learned to confront one another on their own. We need other Christians in our lives to help us follow God. Our hearts can get compromised. Doesn't this chapter prove it to us? Nehemiah teaches them again of how easily our hearts can get compromised. He he talks them to be aware of the sin of Solomon. Listen to this, 1 Kings 11.4. For when Solomon was old, his wives... Turned him, turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. This has to be one of the most forgotten verses in all Scripture, and one that we probably need to remember most. One of my greatest fears from my own life is that I would take in other loves and forget God. It's one of my greatest fears for my own children. The fact that our hearts can be compromised is something for us to be sober about. Solomon is mentioned here as a picture for us to know that we can worship God half-heartedly. Solomon had a Tobiah in his life, a harem of foreign women who led him away from God. What is in your life right now, if it's not dealt with, will lead you away from God? Perhaps God in his marvelous grace for you specifically woke you up this morning and brought you here to hear this and to deal with it right now. The question is, are you going to deal with it? Or are you going to put it off, hoping that it will walk away all on its own? It won't. If you have a Tobiah living in the chambers of your heart, It needs to be dealt with today and not put off. And you're in the right place this morning to deal with it. Perhaps today, following the service, you need to find another Christian and confess your sin. 
and not put it off. Friend, it is pure grace that God brought you here to sit under God's word that reveals our hearts and how we're living. It is his mercy. It is his love. And so I implore you to not put it off. Nehemiah did not put off the sin that needed to be dealt with. One last thing that he deals with in verse 28. One of the sins of Jehoiada, I'm looking forward to preaching in the New Testament with some names that I know. (laughs) The son of Eliashab, the high priest, was the son-in-law of Sambal at the Hornite. Remember him? Therefore I chased him from me. Remember them, O my God, because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. Thus I cleansed them from every foreign, and I established the duties of the priests and Levites, each in his work, and I provided for the wood offering at the appointed times and for the first fruits. Nehemiah expels the law breaking grandson of Eliashem from the Jewish community. Nehemiah has to cleanse the people. One of these marriages that was forbidden was the joining of the high priest's grandson to none other than Sambalat, the Horonite's daughter, the very Sambalat who tried earlier in the book to discredit Nehemiah and to end the work of the rebuilding of the walls. And Nehemiah chases him from the temple. Sometimes chasing troublemakers away is the right thing to do in ministry. And Nehemiah then hands the rest over to God for judgment, who made themselves enemies of God by their godlessness. And then Nehemiah ends the book with another prayer. Remember me, O my God, for good. You know, Nehemiah repeats this prayer in some different forms three times throughout this chapter. He wants God to remember his work. He wanted to be remembered before God on the day of judgment. He was confident that he was serving the people for their holiness and for God's holiness. But at the same time, throughout this chapter, he's looking for the Lord's blessing on his actions. He isn't a man flying by the seat of his pants, just taking things in his own hands, just willfully doing what he wants, just to to be vengeful. No, he's relying on God, praying and asking for God to remember him and all that he's done. He's very aware of who God is and how he's to serve him. So he's not acting improperly here. I believe he's very confident that he's acting in alignment to what God would have him do. And as we've seen throughout the book, Nehemiah seems to view the reestablishment of the worship of God in Jerusalem as the major accomplishment, not the walls. There's definitely a vacuum at the end of this book. You feel it? For all the efforts of Nehemiah and Ezra before, the people of God are still just people. Sinful, forgetful, easily tempted people. And this chapter recounts the fickleness of the people of God. We are no different, friends. This this book has shown us that we're quite like the people of God that Nehemiah was leading. And this is the last record of history of the people of God until the coming of John the Baptist, even though it's in the middle of the Old Testament. 
And this book leaves us off with a need. They really need someone to come and to change their hearts. When will a true Israelite come and to make things all right? Because we're fickle and we're prone to stray and we're prone to wander. And it leaves off in chapter 13, verse 31, and then we see the answer in the book of Matthew. Jesus coming to his own people. And he walks with them and he talks with them and teaches. He even confronts them. And then he dies for them and rises again. See, just as Nehemiah was gone for a long while to the king, he comes back to visit the people again. In Acts 1, 6, they ask Jesus, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and the cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. See, Jesus was with his people. He was walking with his people, he was teaching them, and confronting them, and ultimately dying for them, and resurrected, and we read in Acts that he was taken up to heaven. But Jesus is coming back. What will he find when he comes back. Just as Nehemiah was taken back to the king and comes back to find the disarray, what will Jesus find when he comes back? I want you to think about that this week. Matthew 16, 27, for the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Friend, if you're here and you're living your life hoping that God will overlook your rejection of him and just see you as a good person, you need to understand that that's a lie. When Jesus comes back, it won't be to teach and to show patience, but to judge. And if you're here and you're a non-Christian or you say you're a Christian and yet every evidence in your life says otherwise, I need to warn you. There is a meeting coming that you can never avoid or delay. And Jesus will come back, and on that day, whatever you have trusted in your life will be exposed. Whether you have trusted in your obedience to the Ten Commandments, the fact that you were baptized, the fact that you were a citizen in what you thought was a Christian country, the fact that you never abused your spouse, or the fact that you're just a really good person, at least some of the time, I'm here to tell you that nothing that you have trusted 
in up to, until then, meeting God will save you. God will and should judge you for your sins because he is a righteous God. Your only hope lies in the one who has given himself to take your sins and to die for them on the cross. Your only hope, friend, is to turn and trust in Jesus Christ. And you can do that this morning. That's good news. And so I encourage you, friend, to turn from your sins of trusting in all those other things that you think that somehow they will outweigh the judgment. They won't. Turn to him alone and trust in him alone. And if you're here this morning and you are a Christian and you are trusting in Christ, then continue to rest in him and his faithfulness to do what he says he will do. He is coming back. And, and dwell on those last words of Nehemiah. Remember me, oh my God, for good. See, great is his faithfulness. He will do all that he says he will do. And we can trust in that. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that we can be a part of a church that focuses its attention upon you. God, I thank you for so many, so many Christians that make up this church, that work together so that the gospel can be proclaimed and that we can know you and we can love you and we can trust you. We thank you for a church that is here to reform our lives so that we can walk in obedience to your word. And we praise you, God, that we can not only commit to you for our life, but we can commit to others in their walk with you. And so I pray for those who have not committed to a church family, that they would do so soon. And I pray that when we, when we are confronted with our sin, may we not rise up in defense, but humble ourselves for your glory, we pray. God, we ask that you would help us to be healthy church members that know how to confront lovingly and gently and graciously and courageously. Help us to not see people drifting away and just hope for the best, but help us to go to them to challenge them, to confront them, to turn, and to follow you. Give us grace. Give us fruit in those endeavors. And we'll be sure to give you all the honor and glory for what you do in and through us. For we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.